everyone, and welcome to the Pathfinder podcast. This week, we have David Moore, CEO and founder of Visca Systems that build inspection automation systems for manufacturing. David, thanks very much for joining us today. Do you want to give a bit of background for yourself and tell us what Visca does? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's great to come on to be able to talk about all these new technologies and, and my passions, should I say. Um, so yeah, Visca Systems is a company and what we say is we create intelligent automation that can move, think and see. So we com- combine the motion sense with robotics and the vision sense with cameras and, and algorithms to be able to combine those. So a lot of what we do is kind of automated inspection. And we currently have a customer base in the US, Ireland, UK, one Japan as well. And we, we sell into a variety of industries, including automotive, heavy automotive, semiconductor, food and beverage, and medical advice. So we kind of we cover a lot of bases in, in that sense. My own background, originally I'm actually a mechanical engineer. And I first got into kind of vision and image processing when I was studying and I did a, an internship in, in Austria where I worked in computer topography, so like 3D data sets and writing algorithms for that. Uh, subsequently, I uh, was lucky enough to get a funded PhD to go on and study and work with lasers and measurements in 3D at the kind of micro scale. And in parallel to that, I also worked in, in industry and got some exposure there of using vision for very accurate alignment of parts in manufacturing. That's kind of where it all started off, I suppose, back then. I find it interesting talking to people about their background and where they end up in working with AI, because a lot of people assume that you need to have done computer science and you need an AI background in your undergrad. But the reality is that often people like move into it in either postgrad or even later on. It's interesting to hear that your uh, mech-end background I think you might be the first fully bred mechanical engineer we've had on the podcast. <laughs> so you talk specifically about machine vision. And while I'm more accustomed to the term computer vision, you have some thoughts around the, the difference between those two terms. And maybe can you talk us through some applications of what m- machine vision is and how, how it applies in industry over computer vision? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting point as well. And I do come across this probably frequently in, in terms of, you know, job applications we get in or are just seeing how our technology is applied and how people talk about it. And I suppose the main, and, and uh, this is a very general, I suppose, description, I would, I would call it, of what I see as the understanding of it out there. But computer vision tends to be understood as applications maybe that are, let's say, using a camera where you don't have control over the environment. So you might have a camera looking at people walking down the street, you know, something generic like that, and you have to deal with different lighting conditions. But maybe, let's say, I don't know, if you're applying AI to filter the background of a person standing in an image, for example, if the accuracy is 100%, it doesn't really maybe matter for that application. In machine vision, it's a little bit different. So it's typically used and, and unique to applications that are in manufacturing and inspecting things that are being manufactured. And what we try to do there is we try to control the environment very well. So we control the lighting, we control the color of the lighting, we can control the optics, the depth of field the optics have, the resolution that we can resolve, uh, we can control the type of cameras that, cameras that are chosen for the application, and then also on the processing side, we uh, then are able to control, obviously, what we can inspect. And the difference, I, I would guess, is that maybe within machine vision, and this kind of goes back to what you mentioned a minute ago about being kind of cross-discipline in engineering, is that machine vision tends to be quite interdisciplinary. So if you were to say, right, if I want to be a machine vision engineer, what would I need to know? Ideally, you'll know a little bit about optics, about how light interacts with materials, how things like polarization or reflection work, things like that. 
So some knowledge of physics, you would know some knowledge of computer science. How do computers calculate things? How do they make decisions? How would I program a camera or a system to be able to return a result? And then you would have things like electrical integration. You know, how do I integrate a camera into a system? trigger it with the right types of signals. How does it talk to a PLC? Use an element of networking there as well. Um, so there's quite in-depth and on top of that, then you have things like, say, when you come to doing measurement or high accuracy measurement, maybe you need to know a little bit about mechanics because you need to know about vibration, thermal expansion, things like that. So it's, it can be quite an interdisciplinary type thing. So I would say machine vision, from what I've read on it, actually came, let's say, before what we would consider modern computer vision because the applications maybe were ready for it at that stage, so back in the 80s. And where I think modern computer vision, or what we consider computer vision, is really enabled by the cloud uh, for, for training and the availability of data sets and the internet. So that, that kind of came since then. So they're a little bit different in that sense. Thanks, David. So machine learning algorithms have been known to work for quite a while, really well for image-based applications. And as you mentioned, like a lot of image-based applications, the accuracy isn't critical. But when you're working in a manufacturing environment, surely that's a much bigger factor that you need to work in. What type of accuracies are realistic that you can achieve? I understand that like in a manufacturing environment as well, you have less variation in, in lighting conditions and that, but what are the realistic accuracy levels that you can achieve and what is needed in those environments in a factory? And it's a really interesting question as well, because it's one of those points that's kind of critical to whether something's going to work for an application or not, particularly in manufacturing. So I guess you could classify it into a few different areas. You could say, okay, I have items that are, let's say, quality control because I might get a complaint from a customer. Okay, so let's say, for example, you're buying a box of chocolates and, you know, the box promises 10 variety of chocolates and you want to make sure that the box has the right amount of chocolates. You know, the off chance is you might get a customer that gets nine varieties and they might complain or something like that. So that's kind of like, let's say, low chance of happening and low probably impact really to the overall business, right? Then you could look at applications that have high financial impact. So you might have an assembly process for say like a, an internal combustion engine or a very complicated gearbox or a jet turbine engine, something like that. And th these parts, they cost a lot of money. And what the, the worst thing that can happen to the manufacturer in this case is that they fail in the field. So, you know, if you have a machine that's out and it's running in the field and it gets breakdown because there's a part missing, during assembly or a part that was installed in the wrong orientation, you know, the, the cost of that is massive. So when you look uh, at those, you know, that's a kind of financial impact. And then the third one would be in things like pharmaceuticals or med device, where you kind of have maybe the most important thing is that the actual ethical impact. If stuff that's gone out and that's bad, or you had a medical implant went out and it had a defect and went into somebody, it's not only the financial impact, it's also the ethical kind of impact and the suffering that you would cause a patient because of it. So you really have to look at each type of application on those merits and you would try to evaluate, say, right, for a given customer, what do we think is, is possible, achievable? And really what, what comes out of that is if you have products that have high levels of acceptable variation, they can often be more difficult to, to get working with AI than you do with ones that are very highly repeatable. So let's take an example of that. Say, for example, you had a paint quality inspection on you know, the bucket of a digger, okay? That's gonna get used, uh, you know, it's gonna get sent out to a customer on a building so it's gonna get scratched up over time. Not really all that critical. So, you know, if it comes out and there's bubbles in the paint here or there, 
it's probably not the end of the world for the customer. So they'd, they'd have a high level of acceptable variation and training in learn network to actually decide that that's okay. You know, you can actually pass this and fail that. That can actually be more difficult sometimes than if you have a medical device that has to be very, very exact. And you know, anything that looks out of sorts, you just failed in the inspection. So it's very interesting from that side. We have, uh, I suppose, been able to deploy applications that work in, in the high 90s. And oftentimes, one of the best strategies, if you're moving, say, from a human-centric a- application into an automated application, is not to try to go for full automation after that. So if you can automate with very good certainty 95% of your checks, and you can say, yeah, we're sure all of these parts look good, and we can pass them at high certainty. The ones that are kind of questionable, if you have a process where you can actually pass them to an operator at the end of a shift, and they can quickly check through those 10 or 20 or 50 parts, and then make a human decision on top, you can kind of drastically increase the effectiveness of the deployment. So not going straight to 100% automation is a, is a top tip, I would say, if it's possible. Thanks very much, David. So that's interesting that like you find it's easier to phase your adoption in more slowly. I'm just curious, like you talk about accuracies in the 90s in terms of percentage. How does that com- typically compare to human operators? Yeah, we've done some studies on, on this exact thing. So say, for example, if you're coming in now a machine learning project, the first thing you need to do is collate a data set. So what does that look like practically? Well, we go to a customer, we start a project, we'd install some cameras, we'd capture data over a period of time, and then we would get their skilled operators to help us classify the data. So we've done studies with three or four customers on this, uh, where we would have taken several thousand parts, imaged them, and then have like a user interface where an operator can come along and classify and say, yeah, I agree this is good, or I agree this is bad, or I disagree with the answer. And then we can segregate the data into data sets that we can use for uh, validation of our machine learning tools, right? So as part of that, we've done studies with several thousand parts. And what we find is the ones that are obviously good, they all agree on, as you might imagine. The ones that are obviously bad, they can all agree on. But there's always a bit in the middle where there's a circle of confusion, let's say. And at that point, it's very interesting. We found that operators can disagree up to 40% of the time. Um, so some people will say, oh, no, to be honest, I'd let that one go. And the next person will say, oh, no, I wouldn't let that out. And what actually happens, completely aside from the AI element of this project, is that there's a whole discussion around quality and what actually is or isn't allowed for subjective type inspections. And what we find is that customers actually get a huge bump in quality just from having that conversation. So it's a complete side benefit from the project, but we're actually going through it in such detail over thousands of images, you really find out what they do or don't agree on. So that's that's a very interesting point that we found along the way. So it really sounds to me like adopting computer vision for fault detection is really kind of part of a lean strategy or Six Sigma strategy. When, you're talk, when I hear you talking about things like the complexity of a problem or the opportunities for defects to occur, these are really Six Sigma topics. So it sounds like the machine vision solution really fits, into, fits in well to that uh, Six Sigma approach of lean manufacturing. It sure does. And, uh, you know, one of the things we released over the last couple of years, we've built a product called Visible. So I'll give it a little plug here. And uh, basically what it is, it's a software platform that allows you to use robots or cameras to be able to automate the inspection of assemblies. So if you can imagine, you could have a turning combustion engine, for example, and you want to inspect 50 inspection points at the end of line check to make sure everything's been installed properly. 
we now have a way to do it that we can easily set up using this type of software. At the moment, we're working on some offline programming capabilities, so we can actually simulate the whole environment, generate the robot paths, export them, and then for each inspection point that you would have that you want to check, this will make it very easy to configure the camera parameters. So you know, how bright is your image, how dark is your image, and then to set up what image processing we perform at each inspection. And by doing that, we've enabled some customers that have, say, 10,000 different types of configurations uh, of, of their engines or gearboxes or assemblies that they produce that they can now manage from the existing database where they have an existing database of all the checks for each type of configuration, leverage that from their MES system, automatically generate the robot inspection plan, configure all the inspection points, report back all the results. And what it does is it gives our customers in the end full traceability then because they can go back, they can see every serial number, they can see all the different inspection points. So not only do they have the inspection result, but they also have the image for a record and they can go back and see, can see what went day of when. And that's uh, been a game changer for some, some of our customers from a Six Sigma point of view. I realize I'm going to sound like a complete engineering nerd, but that sounds really cool and fun to be working on. What we found ourselves in talking to companies is that there's often a reluctance to adopt machine learning in automation processes like uh, so i'm just curious what your experience is when you try to introduce customers into using ml for automated inspection um what kind of reluctance do you come across and like what are the non-technical barriers like is there an element of change management or is it uh, infrastructural so let's say there, there are several let's say non-technical barriers in, in a way that aren't related to the machine learning side of the project that would be difficult so for example, applications where it's very difficult to find a defect. So if you have a really good process and you barely ever get a defect, if we set the system up, how are we going to test it? That actually picks up defects. And on the back of that then, types of products where it's really expensive to make defects, that's very difficult as well. So typically we find a sweet spot. If you wanted to pick out like a sweet spot type application, if you have one that's in line during manufacturing, where the cost of creating the defect is not too expensive. So that could be, for example, I want to do a check, see if a bolt has been put in the right place or, you know, something has been assembled properly. You know, if you can take a picture before the bolt is put in, you can now collate a data set that uh, has, the, has the fail condition. And that's an easy way to get kind of get up and running. Uh, when you're looking at end of line inspection, that can be more costly because, you know, it might be essentially damaging a good product. If you can try to apply, I suppose, some let's say, principles of photoshopping and some defects to try and artificially create defects, but uh, for the best results, you'll, you'll get pictures of the real thing, I suppose. The reluctance then in general, I suppose, it depends on the industry. So I would say for medical device, uh, the biggest query or biggest worry in general I would hear is, you know, how do we validate this? How are we going to test that this is going to work as well as we expected? And the same question you can pose directly to, okay, we well, have humans doing it now. How did you validate that they can do it? And the benefit that a human has is that they have this ability to be able to look at something they're inspecting and to be able to tell something doesn't look right from what they've done before. And this can be a little bit more tricky to do with machine learning. So typically you might want to test that machine learning returns a pass or fail result in each possible type of fail condition but it can be very difficult to create every single scenario, right? And that's where humans, I guess, are, are very strong at. They have that intuition to be able to use previous experiences and things like that to be able to make these decisions where machine learning is really 
like taking a new operator that has no experience training them from scratch and but that is literally all they know there, there can be things like that however basically how we get around that is we just do lots of testing very extensive testing the next thing that i suppose in terms of reluctance will be sometimes we don't know what's going to work right and this is just an element of it so you can come in you can say could we use a machine learning or deep learning to, to solve this application and, and unless it's something that we've worked on very closely before or it's something that we can get some advice on from some of our partners you know sometimes you just don't know the best ways to test it if you can get the parts easily and you can image the parts easily then it's not too hard to test it but if it's difficult to image the parts properly and it requires a special lighting setup and special optics then it starts to get expensive so who, who's going to bear the cost and it's it's really only an r&d project right and that, that's probably one of the biggest barriers so something you said there at the very start was when you're talking about situations where it's difficult to find a defect so just just to be clear for our audience, are there situations where the process is so well refined that defects rarely occur and that in order to build a data set, you often don't have enough examples of defects in that data set? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. So, okay, if we took a, say, a more simple application, sometimes they use this paper-like material for sealing packages and medical devices, and they need to check the outside of that package to see if there's any debris. So like, is, is there an eyelash on it? Are there bits of dirt on it? At the moment, how this will be normally done is, you know, you'd have an operator standing there and they do an arm's length inspection. So they hold it at arm's length and if they can see it and it's a defect, then it's a defect. If it's not, it gets by, right? And what we find is like, you, again, you could do the study with three people and we can all see different types of defects. Some people have better vision than others. So it's very hard sometimes to get down to the nitty gritty of what is or isn't a defect. But essentially, what, what, to your point there, creating defects is very difficult in certain applications. So if we're to take a packaging example, it's easy to create a defect. You just put a mark on the packaging maybe, and you could make loads of different types of defects and you can test your model really thoroughly and you can then you can be happy before you give it to the customer that's working really well. However, if you were to say, take a finished assembly, an expensive assembly of whatever components, uh, and now you need to make a defect on it, that, that's a completely different ask. The customer might not want to actually invest the, the cost of doing that. Also, you know, if it's a large object, is it easy to make a defect on? Sometimes if you're working on small objects, it's very challenging to artificially make defects that are very small, that are kind of, let's say, representative of what might happen during the process. So it, it kind of gets complicated from that side, but there's a sweet spot in there in the middle where you can kind of look, look at some of these, which are, are, are not difficult to, to replicate. Okay, great. Thanks very much, David. So when manufacturers are looking at adopting uh, machine learning, technology specifically like for automated inspection a lot of them can be put off by the journey that they have to go on to adopt the technology so i'm just curious if there's specific resources that you have found that really help or that they need to have in place before they can actually adopt the technology and, and make it a, the implementation a success so like in terms of how can they be set up to collect quality data sets or anything else in terms of infrastructure Sure, I'd say probably the biggest impact there is actually the tools that we would use. So Visca is partnered with a, a few different companies as technology providers as well, and they kind of feed in within our solutions, let's say. Uh, one of them being Cognex, and Cognex would have very well-refined deep learning toolkits that we use, and they have very advanced UIs for labeling the data. And we internally have advanced 
let's say, solutions for managing and version controlling data sets and, and models as well. And with that, we're able to, I suppose, go in, go to the customer, use their experience to say, uh, you know, this application is going to be difficult. This one's going to be easier. Here's the ROI on this particular application. Be able to go in and help, first of all, decide what to do, then help them to collect the data. We have a vision lab here at our, at our office um, where we have a bunch of different types of lenses and lighting. So for most applications, we're able to kind of solve them using that. And it's only very kind of oddball, difficult applications that are that we need to kind of go outside for. That kind of gets over that first hurdle of being able to collect the data. And then it's really sitting with the customer and being able to figure out what is a good part, what is a defect part, going through that whole journey. So we kind of are able to hold our hands through that whole journey and try to define what a successful outcome looks like. When you go through all of that, you kind of learn a lot about the product the customer's working on, the defects, where they occur. And, and sometimes, for example, you might come to the conclusion, okay, we're looking at putting one system in at the end of line to do all of these checks. But then when you really look at it, it's actually easier overall to put in three systems in line further upstream and catch the error as it's occurring, you know, and, and things like that. And it can be easier from an image processing point of view, but it can also be easier from a, a process point of view. So there can be things like that where we, where you help the customer along and uh, try and get it across the line. And um, but we have we have deployed them now in, in automotive, some in kind of semiconductor, and uh, we've deployed a good few in automotive as well. Automated inspections, both in line and end of line. Thanks, David. So one last question before you go. Do you have any advice for spotting the quick wins in ML projects in manufacturing? Absolutely. And it's, it's kind of a conclusion, I suppose, of things that we've talked about so far. Uh, one of them would be end-of-line inspection is generally more difficult uh, to, to get right as a whole process. So say, for example, if you wanted, if you had one check at the end of line that you were doing and you wanted it to be 99% effective, Okay, that, that's one thing. If you do 10 checks at the same station, each check needs to be 99.9% effective for the whole station to reach 99. So if you have multiple checks, that can obviously get a lot more difficult. And, and you know, the, the difference between getting a model, as, as I'm sure you know as well, that's 99 or 99.9, there's a gulf. <laughs> there's a gulf there uh, trying to get that right. So that's definitely one hot tip. The second thing then is, yeah, look at applications where it's not expensive to create a defect. And that could be if it's an assembly, just don't put the part in take a picture and then you know it's easy for us to create those type of defects also then we're packaging you know if you're looking for debris on the pack that can be easy to generate as well things like that um and then i i guess you know there there are certain situations again going back to the kind of financial impact of quality to say that you might have certain products that are high value that would benefit you know the roi on a this type of installation would be a lot quicker so we have an roi calculator that we use with our customers where you can go in and you can put in everything from the initial investment cost, the cost of your existing operators doing said inspection, cost of bad quality going out the door. And we try to estimate what the ROI would be. And for some customers we've sold already, we've seen ROI in like less than six months. So it's very attractive from that point of view compared to some other other investments. Those ones are definitely go-do projects. And then there are other ones that are going to take longer to get ready. Uh, typically then we sometimes uh, another tip would be you know if you're very low manufacturing volume so we would have some customers that make five to ten of something a day so obviously it takes a while to collect the data where if you're making thousands of something in a day you know you can collect all the data you need in a day and that's one of the the advantages we see as well using our toolkits is that we can actually train 
on British monumental data. So there are kind of new new cameras out that are coming out now that do all the learning on the edge. Uh, and literally you can start getting good classification results with like 20 images. It's crazy. So it's it's, it's really like there's a, a big improvement there in terms of the tools that are becoming available. But definitely if you have more data available, it's going to be better for implementing the whole process. And then I suppose to, to finish up on that, tip number five, I would say is this isn't so much about replacing humans in the process, but it can be about supplementing. So typically for, let's say, uh, critical quality inspections in production, it wouldn't be uncommon to see two people do a particular inspection, especially if that's happened before that, you know, a back quality event has happened. So sometimes that'll be an operator, they will inspect it, and then a supervisor will also have to inspect it. But by putting in an automated system, you can let the automated system now fulfill the role of the operator, and then the operator could fulfill the role of the supervisor. So you kind of, you move it around and you actually re-optimize the resources on the floor. So it's kind of interesting if you, if you look from that point of view, you can actually um, achieve ROI even quicker. Great. Thanks very much, David. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me on. It's been great. And that is it for this week's episode of the Pathfinder podcast. I'd like to thank David Moore again from Physical Systems for joining us today. David has also very kindly offered two consulting sessions for our listeners. So if you're interested in having a one-to-one session with David, contact us on info at skellig.ai. Thank you.